You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, one of the passages that we'll be looking at this morning comes from the prophet Amos. So I'm going to begin in Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7, uh, beginning with verse 7. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, See, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. just want to pause there for a second and say, I will never again pass them by. It might sound like good news to you, as though uh, the Lord's never going to kind of go past us and leave us. But in the Old Testament, consistently for God to pass by Israel is for God to kind of come close for God to come near, for God to manifest himself, to show that he's God. So for God to say, I'm never going to pass by, is daunting. It's, it's fearful. It's uh, scary news. God says, I'm never going to pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then... Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, Go, flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. Then the Lord took me from, the following, from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And this is what he prophesied. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus the Lord says, Your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Ooh, that is heavy. Like Amos, can you take a break? Like if you're the priest, Amaziah, and Amos comes and he prophesies such harsh, such heavy words, you might say, hey, why don't you take a break? You know, you could always go south. <laughs> you could prophesy to the kingdom of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom up in Israel, we're, we're respectable folks. We've got some money. We've got some land. Things are going pretty good. We really don't need you, Amos. I mean, 
I'm not even sure why you're here. And Amos kind of admits, he's like, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But God, I was a herdsman. You know, I was taking care of sycamore trees. But God called me, and he called me to come and to say these things. And these things are so, so tough. Let me divert just a minute and talk about a game that I like to play. It's the game of chess. Any chess players in the group? Really? All right, just a couple. We're going to have to get together and play some. Chess, chess is a game of kings. It's, it's a game of wealth and privilege. You know, the, you know basically how the game works, right? So there are two sides, and on the front, on, on each side, there are two rows of pieces, and on the front row are these pawns. They're kind of expendable. The plebes, the regular folks, the folks who just kind of get enlisted in the king's war, right? You can send them out first, and if, if they get captured or taken, then so be it. It's what happens to a pawn. We can't be kind of too you know, upset about it, All right? You lose a few pawns. That's just how the game goes. But on the back row are your more kind of important pieces, your more valuable pieces, we'll say. On the far, far outside corners are your rooks. They look like castles. And they can move as far as they want to, kind of uh, vertically or horizontally. They're kind of powerful pieces. And then just inside the rooks are your knights. They look like horses often on, when they're pieces, but they kind of represent the cavalry. And they can move in certain angles, right? They can't just move kind of one way or the other. they got a diagonal move. And they're the, only, they're the only piece on the board that can ever jump another piece. Not like checkers, like jump it to take it off, but just in times of maneuvering. So they're pretty valuable too. And then just to the inside of the knights, interestingly enough, you have your bishops, which are the closest to your royalty, the closest to the king and queen. Now the queen's a very valuable piece. She's the most versatile She's, she's the only one who can move kind of both horizontally and diagonally as far as she wants. And so she's pretty powerful. And if your queen gets captured, that's kind of bad news for you. But what's interesting about the game of chess is that it's actually impossible for the king to be captured. Like, the king can never be captured. If you ever get into a position where the king, on the next move, your king potentially could be taken, someone has to call check, meaning, hey, uh, I've got you cornered. You have to move your king because you can't take a king. Like, technically, the king can never be captured. In fact, the way the game comes to an end is if one one player kind of corners another player's king to the point that the king can't move into a position of danger, then we call it checkmate. We actually end the game before the king has an opportunity to actually be captured. It is the ultimate game of wealth and privilege. The king can send everybody else out to die, even his queen, but the king himself can never actually be captured can never actually die. It's a great game if you're a king, right? What a story. And what's interesting about it, too, is that you have all, all your poor folks, you're just kind of regular folks, your pawns in front of you that can kind of go out and be spent and so, and so forth. But then the closest thing to the king and queen 
It's not the rooks, it's not the power of the castles and the buildings, and it's not the knights, it's not the power of the military or the cavalry. What's kept closest to the king is the bishops. And why would you keep bishops so close to you? Well, perhaps because you want God on your side. right? You want God to kind of endorse your, your military effort. Or maybe something more manipulative is going on. Because if you can keep the bishops close, the bishops can influence the pawns. Like, the game of chess is a game, but it's also intended to kind of train. It was, it was taught to kings, it was taught to princes uh, about what it would be like to kind of grow up. It was, a, it was about strategy. It was teaching critical thinking. And it also kind of taught them a certain stratification of society about who was most important and who wasn't. There's a story in Genesis where Pharaoh is kind of taking over everything in both northern Africa and in the kind of lower Middle East. And, and Joseph is somewhat complicit in this story. They've, they've stockpiled resources because of a dream and its interpretation about a coming famine. And when the famine fir- finally comes, the first year, the people have to give their money in order to get grain despite the fact that the grain was initially their grain that was was stored. Forget that part of the story, right? Their grain was collected and stored. Now that the famine is here, the first year they have to give money to get grain. The second year, they don't have any money, and so they say, hey, the famine's still going on, but we need some grain, and so they have to give their livestock. Well, the third year... They have no money, they have no livestock, but the famine's still going on, and so they have to give their land. And then the fourth year of the famine, they have no money, they have no livestock, and they have no land. And so Joseph's like, well, what what you got? And then all we have is ourselves. And he'll say, okay, we'll take it. And everybody becomes slaves of Pharaoh. The only people who are left anything are the priests, And the priests are allowed to keep their land. Why would the priests be allowed to keep land when everyone else lost their money, their livestock, and their land? I think it's because if you have the priests keep their land, then the priests can tell everyone, listen, you should obey the Pharaoh. You should should accept your state. You should be compliant. You should find a certain amount of of, of wellness just in, in the way that you are. Sometimes religion gets co-opted by the powerful and it gets used as a device to kind of control them. Let's look back at this particular passage just real quickly. There's this one verse that really stood out to me. It's verse 12. It says, and Amaziah, he's the priest, right? Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary, and it's the temple of the kingdom. Never prophesy again at Bethel. Bethel is a place that earlier in this biblical story... Jacob had gotten to this place, and it's where he kind of, you know the story of Jacob's ladder? 
He saw the angels going up to heaven and descending, and he kind of wrestled with God there. It's Jacob who names this place Bethel, which means house of God. Like this place where Amos is prophesying is a place that their ancestors had called the house of God. This is the house of God. And what does the priest say? The priest says, do not prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary. It's the temple of the kingdom. No, it's not. It's not the king's sanctuary. It's God's sanctuary. It's not the temple of the kingdom. It's the temple of God. We've confused ourselves, or at least Amaziah, I believe, has confused himself, or he's been confused, to think that whatever the king Jeroboam wants is what God wants. But just because what the powerful want, just because it's the person, what the person in charge wants, doesn't necessarily mean it's what God wants. Because what were they doing? They were neglecting the poor. They weren't caring for the needy. They weren't kind of providing for those who couldn't provide for themselves. They they had made God's chosen people and God's chosen land and God's chosen leader, King Jeroboam, the reason for being. And now the priest has just endorsed that. And that's why we have prophets. Prophets come along to tell us a different story. Prophets come along to say, time out, wait a minute. Let's look at this from a different angle. And that's exactly what this prophet does. And apparently, this is pretty serious. To take that which God has established for the good of the people, to take God's house, a place where everyone should be welcome to pray and to be cared for and to come and worship God, and to change that place into a politicized place to kind of protect the story of the powerful is one of the ultimate sins. Amos' prophecy comes in so strong because they had gotten it so wrong. As Jeremiah would say, this house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus quotes this, right? But he says, but you've made it a den of thieves. You've made it a hideout for rebels. You've made it a place that it wasn't meant to be. And the prophecy comes strong and heavy against it. This idea of mercy gets picked up again in the Gospels. And this is part of the the drama that we just heard. But let's look at it. It's in Luke chapter 10. It's a story that's unique to Luke's gospel, and it's a story about about mercy as it's supposed to be distributed, uh, not as it was failed to be distributed in Israel when Amos was prophesying there. Picking up in verse 25 of chapter 10, it says, Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? That's a good question for a lawyer, right? The lawyer says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, lawyer, what do you read in the law? (laughs) 
I love that. The, the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer and you will live. And wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, why couldn't he have just left it alone, right? He's like, what do I need to do to receive eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? <laughs> and he says, well, the law says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, right, you, you got it. You'll live. Do that. And so here comes the attorney. All right, all right, that's good, that's good, but, but, but who's my neighbor? Jesus replied with this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put uh, him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And the attorney responded, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Part of what we're wanting to do in this summer series, Family Ties, is, is one, to recount these old stories, even these kind of difficult stories like out of the prophet of Amos. But we we're telling these stories because we believe they're part of our story. Like our collective story, the story of our family, is the story of a, of a prophet named Amos who spoke up against the powerful in his kingdom. Our story is the story of this other rabbi prophet who turned out to be more than that, right? He turned out to be the Messiah, the very Son of God. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They responded, well, some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Why is it that everyone thought that Jesus was like a prophet? Well, it's because he was doing things and he was saying things that prophets would do or say. He was behaving like a prophet. He was carrying that, that burden, that message, that word to the people that was saying, hey, there's another way of being in this world. There's another way of kind of participating in the human race. And it looks like this. And part of what it looks like is showing mercy. Showing mercy, being merciful. So we've all experienced this, I think, to varying degrees. We've all been kind of the subjects of mercy. That someone has shown us mercy. They've been merciful to us. Um, this has happened a lot in my life. 
uh, I find myself in kind of a tight spot in this situation or that, and, and either the powers that be or the, the people that um, could kind of hold me in more strict judgment have been merciful to me. They, they've cut me a break. Um, they, they gave me a hand. Uh, I'm, I'm where I am today because other people who could have lowered the boom on me didn't. And so I do my best to try and pay that forward because in, in a lot of ways, it's impossible to pay back. Like, like you rarely get an opportunity to extend mercy back to the one who showed you mercy. But you do have opportunity to show mercy to other people in your lives. This is exactly what I think Israel was being called to do, and they were failing at it. And so the prophet comes and says, look, this is what the Lord has to say. Things are going to get bad. They're going to get real bad, right? Your families are going to fall apart. Your, your, your country is going to fall apart. Your temple is going to be destroyed. Your kingdom is going to cease to exist, and you're going to find yourself in exile. This is no joke. Mercy is not an option. Mercy is a requirement. We are required to show mercy. We sang a song earlier about mercy triumphing over judgment. That particular line, mercy, um, I forget exactly how it goes, but we, we just sang it. Um, but mercy triumphing over judgment comes from James chapter 2. Uh, James is writing about the necessity that we not show favoritism. Like, we can't be partial when it comes to people. So we won't read it, but in in the book of James, which is kind of a, a collection of different wisdom sayings, he says this, if somebody kind of comes in um, and they, they take their seat, and he says, then if a rich person comes in who has like a nice robe and a nice ring, don't make the, other, the first person kind of get up and move and say, hey, 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 we're going we're gonna to make this for the rich person. Like, we're going to have them sit here. He says, don't do that. He says, follow the law of liberty. The law of liberty. That's a very interesting phrase, I think. He defines the law of liberty as loving your neighbor as yourself. Kind of, the, in a way, a little bit there of the golden rule kind of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But not to confuse these, this love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor yourself is often referred to as the great commandment. It is kind of the, the summary of the law. Like Jesus was once asked, how would you summarize the law? And he quoted this same passage. You can read it in Mark. They said, Jesus, what's, what's the chief Rule. What's the chief law? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is as the first, or the second half is as the first half, is how I read that, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that love your neighbor as yourself is what James calls the law of liberty. He says, look, if, if you want to follow this legalistically, if you want to just be kind of follow the rules as they, as they go, Here's the rules. If you break one, you've broken the rules. That's pretty tough. So the rule says, do not murder. Chances are, I haven't murdered anybody. 
chances are living in Lakeland, I, I should be able to live out the rest of my life without murdering someone. Like, it's a pretty safe place, generally speaking. Now, I'm not the best driver, and sometimes I need to pay more attention when I drive. I, I have the potential maybe to hurt somebody, but, but hopefully not, right? But he says, it doesn't matter if you don't commit murder or you don't commit adultery. If you break one law, you've, you've broken them all. So let's say you don't murder. Great. But if you commit adultery, well then, you've broken the law. So how does that sound for everybody? Anybody feel like they're ready just to kind of live up to all the rules? He said, this is the law of liberty. To love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's what we all need. And we know this in our hearts. But it's also what we're being required to give. Look, part of what makes this law of liberty, I think, a law of liberty, a law of freedom, is that it doesn't bind us. Like, if we read the law, if we read the rules of God, and we think that that somehow constricts us, I think we're reading it wrong. Like, that's not what the law is intended to do for us. The law is intended to set us free. Like, that's what a, a right reading of the law does. Like, you think <clears throat> that it's telling you, telling you not to do this and not to do that. Like, it's going to box you in. But doing those things is what actually boxes you in. Right? That, that will lead to... Um, imprisonment. <laughs> that will lead to addiction. That will lead to the things that actually do make you captive. But following the law actually does set you free. Loving your neighbor as yourself is a law of liberty because it, it gives you liberty. It sets you free from egotism. It sets you free from greed. It sets you free from the things that would confine you. That Jesus' parable about who is your neighbor, your neighbor is the one who shows you mercy. And this neighbor, as was hinted at in our, in our skit earlier, is of a different race. The Samaritans were, were treated as an other racially. Like they weren't pure, quote unquote, Jews. Yeah? Because their families had been in that northern kingdom that a Amos had prophesied about their destruction. Their destruction had come. And when the destruction of the northern kingdom had come, you had a people group now that had, had lost their identity. And so some of those folks who were in judgment had been taken into exile into Assyria, kind of modern-day Iraq. Others had been kind of left around. And so their families just kind of intermarried with the various Canaanite tribes that were around. And so the Samaritans, part of their family line was, was the Jews of the ancient kingdom of Israel that Amos prophesied against. And part of their family line were the, were the various kind of Canaanites that had been around. And so Amos' prophecy had come true, 
and in some ways had produced the Samaritan people. And it was the Samaritan who ends up being the neighbor. And the Samaritan is the neighbor not by virtue of birth or, or by virtue of right belief, because they didn't, Samaritans didn't believe what the Jews believed. But the Samaritan was the neighbor by virtue of sharing mercy. It's not just that they were of a different race than the Jews. They're also of a different religion. Like, they worship here at Old Bethel, right? And the Jews worship down at Jerusalem. They read Scripture, but their Scripture is just the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Where, where the Jews were reading not just the Torah, but the prophets and the writings. So they're reading Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. As well as the prophets, interestingly enough, including Amos, who had prophesied right, against the northern kingdom, the ancestors of the Samaritans. Drawing dynamic equivalents of this, if we're honest with ourselves, would be difficult for us in the same way that it would have been difficult for Jesus' initial hearers. To say, to tell a parable about a good Samaritan would have struck the ears kind of oddly for most of Jesus' hearers. It would have been an oxymoron, right? Plastic glasses, jumbo shrimp, Microsoft works, Civil War. Yeah. All of those things that they're opposites and we use them together, it's pretty ugly. Those types of things, a good Samaritan. Because the Samaritans, the Jews thought, weren't good. They're not our race, they're not our religion. They're the other. So, a different race, maybe somebody from the Middle East, a different religion, maybe a Muslim, maybe somebody from China who's Buddhist or somebody from India who's Hindu, would be the character we would need to hear that story told in in order for it to hit our ears like this parable would have hit the ears of the Jews in Jesus' community. That's the neighbor. And how do we know that's the neighbor? Because they showed mercy. Following later then in the canon, we have the instruction of James. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Acts of mercy. Earlier in our announcements, we said there's an opportunity that's coming up on Saturday. It comes around every third Saturday of the month, just around the corner at Blessings and Hope Food Pantry. A little more than a year ago, Blessings and Hope was in between locations, and so they were located here for a few months because they had yet to find kind of their permanent home. But their permanent home is now on Edgewood. And there are people in Lakeland and the greater Lakeland area that are experiencing food insecurity. They don't have enough to eat. They're making choices between rent and food or prescriptions and food or gas to get to work and food. And you have an opportunity to show mercy. I know there are other things that we could do with our Saturday mornings. I like to do stuff on Saturday morning. 
There's things to do. You hit the golf course, hit the lake on the boat, take a run, read a book, watch the History Channel, whatever you like to do. But there's something else that you could do on a Saturday morning. And I'm not, I'm not saying you're having to spend all day every day. But what I am saying is that you should be, we should be people of mercy. Like, it's not optional. In this series, we've talked about various things like practices, like how do we live the Christian faith? How does the family ties tie into the summer? We talked about silence and solitude. Silence and solitude will help you. It will calm you. When, when troubles come, if you've practiced some silence, you'll be stable. We also talked about um, spiritual friendship. Right? That, that Christianity is not a solo sport, nor is it, nor is it a spectator sport. Right? It's a team sport that we play together. Like we're in this together. And we need folks who have, are a little further down the line than we are to kind of be that kind of steadying, helpful presence, that, that friend that we have in Christ. And then last week, Chris spoke to us, or spoke to the church about baptism. That's a Christian practice. If you haven't been baptized, then I, I, I strongly encourage you to, to consider it. Reach out to me or Mikkel and let us talk to you about baptism. And then this week, Acts of mercy, being merciful, seeing in the other, whoever that other is, your brother or your sister, the person that has been made in the image of God, the person whose soul for whom Christ died. One of the great things about following Jesus and one of the most difficult things I think about following Jesus is that while Moses said, love your neighbor, right? And in the, if you're reading Leviticus in the context, it is neighbor there does seem to mean fellow Jew. Interesting enough, Muhammad said the same thing and it's written in the Quran, love your neighbor. He's quoting Moses, but still it's in the Quran. Islam teaches you to love your neighbor. But Christianity is different on this point. Because Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor? That's good. I mean, not that hard really, is it? To love people that love you? To just share, reflect back the love they're giving you? He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemy. When you look in the face of the other, even when you look in the face of your enemy, you should see your brother or your sister, someone to whom you can and should show mercy. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.